Genesis chapter 50. Today, we're just giving an example of what it is we've been talking about all these weeks now. This is the ninth week we've been together, and this will be the last week that the nine o'clock hour will be given to this particular seminar. And then after this, we'll rotate back into the normal schedule. Aaron, I assume next week, it's Mother's Day, but I'm sure we'll, we'll be meeting and There you go. Uh, generations of Esau for Mother's Day. Uh, Esau had a lot of babies, mamas, and so we can talk about that. <laughs> Things not to do with the text. That's an example. <clears throat> All right. Genesis chapter 50. Beginning in verse 15, the lead up to this passage, this particular passage, is the death of Jacob, the mourning that takes place 40 days of mourning, and then, uh, then after having embalmed their father and having uh, cared for his body, having mourned in the process of mourning, they went to Pharaoh, asked permission to take Jacob's body and bury it. They were granted this favor, and then we come to Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. And the brothers uh, are in full view here. Joseph's brothers. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we do to him, that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. <coughs> and thus ends the book of the first revelation of God to his people. The story of Joseph, starting in chapter 37, it dominates the book. It moves from chapter 37 to chapter 50. I mean... 
This is a, to say this is a monumental story in the beginning of the Bible, this story of Joseph, would be an understatement. Jacob has 12 sons, and only one, only one receives detailed storytelling. Only one. Why? Why did Moses, in his writing of the book, why did he focus so much on the life of Joseph? I mean, he didn't cover in detail how Judah and his sons lived. Nor did he talk a lot about Benjamin, who was actually the favored son, even more, even, even more in some ways than Joseph in the eyes of the people because he was born, we might say, on the right side of the tracks, not the wrong side of the tracks. He's the only son of Jacob born in the promised land. All the others born out away from there. So why the focus on Joseph? What, what's going on? 13 chapters given to the life, 14 chapters given to the life of this one person in the story of God's people. We know that there were 70 people kept alive that came into Egypt. None of their stories are told in this kind of detail. Joseph is held up for us in a way no one else is. He, he gets as much time here as his father Jacob in some ways, and he gets as much detail even in some ways as Abraham. He's elevated like them. Well, I think the key to seeing Joseph's life and understanding it is in, these, in, these, in this passage right here. First of all, God elevated Joseph because Joseph identified himself with God. Where do we get that from this text? Well, look at the last paragraph. We're going to kind of take it in reverse order. In verse 25 and 26, we get the last statement of Joseph and the, the summing up of Joseph's life by Moses. God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Now, this is not a statement on the importance of the human body. This is a statement on identification. Joseph was the servant of God, identified with God himself. Why did he want his bones carried back to the promised land and not left in Egypt? Because the promised land was God's land. The promised land represented for him and his brothers the promises of God. Now, the, the promises are represented physically by the land. But we know, and they knew, there's a greater promise in view here, isn't there? The land is just... We might say the outward kernel. The land is just the shuck. The real important part of the promise of God is what? Your offspring, Abraham, shall be a blessing to the nations. So what Joseph's doing when he says, I want my bones carried from this place and put into a tomb, my family's tomb, in Canaan. What he's really saying is, I want to be with God. I want my bones where my heart is. I want my body, my physical body, to represent for the people of, of, of my descendants that when God is, when you are with God, when you identify with God, then you are safe. When you disenfranchise yourself from God, then you're lost. That's really what Joseph's teaching here by his burial practice. Some have misunderstood this and they've wrongly revered the human body. They've taught that, you know, in bond, um, that, that a body, you know, is wrong to be, uh, uh, 
to not be buried. They've made burial Christian. But, but that's not the case here at all. That's missing the point. That's a shallow understanding of the text. We see further evidence of this in chapter 24. I mean, in verse 24. Look what he says. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die physically, but God will visit you. Look at the faith in Joseph's life. God will visit you. There's no sign of God visiting his people at this point. Now, as a matter of fact, they're going to suffer under tyrannical uh, slavery for hundreds of years from this point. There's no end to the dwelling in Egypt. This is just the beginning. And yet, look at Joseph. With the eye of faith, he looks out into the future and says, God is going to come get you. He's identifying with God. That identity is placed by God in him, and it's represented or it comes out in the act of faith. We know that Joseph is regenerate, in other words, because of the faith that he has in God. Against all evidence to the contrary, the world is still under famine. The world is still in desolation. There's no hope of going back to Canaan at any time in the near future. Joseph is going to die. He knows it. And yet he, he believes, just like he believes he's going to die, with the same amount of confidence he has that he's about to die, he has that same confidence that God's coming to get his people. You see that? This is the life of faith, birthed from regeneration. The fact that Joseph is a child of God. He is the child of the king. And he's identifying physically with the covenant and with the promise of the covenant. We could say, Joseph identifies with Jesus Christ. Now, he didn't know him as Jesus, but he knew him as the offspring. You see, we wrongly believe that the people of Israel missed what we see now. But the believers have always seen it. That Abraham was being promised not just a son, Isaac, nor just Isaac's son, Jacob, nor Jacob's son, the twelve but rather that they saw that God was promising a blessing to all the nations. And this blessing would come from the singular offspring. So Joseph's identif identifying with God. More, more even than that, he's representing his identification through faith in the promised one. God will come to you. How can he be so confident? Nothing on the outside tells him God will come, and yet... He believes it because God has said it. God has promised. Well, let's continue. If we keep looking at this story, we find more here. A deeper point. Because we're trying to understand why is Joseph emphasized? Why is it that Joseph is set apart from his brothers? Shown in such detail. What's, he, what's going on here? Well, in the, back in the beginning of this passage in verse 15, the brothers are fearful. The brothers being the liars that they have always been, much like their father. They're liars. Remember when they took Joseph, threw him in the pit, and then sold him into slavery? What was their response? And now we've got to find something to tell Dad, right? So what did they do? They undertook a cover-up scheme. They lied. And they told their poor father that their brother was dead. His favorite son was dead by ripping to shreds his cloak and covering it in the blood of a sheep, and then taking it back to him as an identification that poor Joseph, your son, the one you love so much, he was ripped to shreds by a wild beast. It sent their father into mourning for the rest of his life. I want you to think about these brothers. 
Think about how calloused they are. Their father lives in sackcloth and ashes over the death of his son. And they know they're lying. And not one of them says, hey, you know, really what happened is we sold him into slavery. And they didn't exist this way for a day, or a week, or a month, years. Years passed. And poor old Jacob sat in sackcloth and ash. Even when he wasn't in sackcloth and ash, his heart is broken. We see it come out when Joseph, when he's in the high position in Egypt, asks for Benjamin to be brought to him. We see the grief is still very real because Jacob's afraid to send his youngest son lest he be bereaved of his only son. Now he considers Benjamin his only son with the loss of Joseph. So we have here these brothers who again, we would think God has extended such grace to them. He has saved them from the pain and suffering of Canaan in a drought. He's provided for them through the hand of their brother Joseph, who was lifted up to second in charge of Egypt. Surely something new has happened. Surely their hearts have been turned. Surely... We see the work of God. Is that what we see in chapter 50? No. We see brothers who still live in fear and deception. They truly are the sons of Jacob, aren't they? Like, like their father, their physical father, who always struggled with the propensity of lying and living in fear, they lie and live in fear. They send this falsified message they make up this story. Now, it's funny to me because in chapter 49, when Jacob's blessing his sons, Joseph was there. I mean, Jacob's on his deathbed and Joseph is the one there at the bed. Joseph has, has time with his dad that his brothers don't even have. When his, when his dad's blessing Manasseh and Ephraim, he, he's there with him. When he dies, he falls across his body and weeps and mourns. And yet these brothers are so caught on themselves that they lie. They think they can falsify the end of jo Jacob's life. Your, your dad, Joseph, he said, be kind to us. They, 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 they did sin against you, but don't be harming them because they're the servants of God and your father. We see that, no, none of these brothers can be held up as exemplary. None of these brothers can be held up in the way Joseph is because none of them, none of them at this point identifies with the covenant the way he does. Joseph identifies with the covenant that God, the promise that God has made. Joseph lives as a man sold under the mastery of God, living in light of God and His goodness and identifying even down to the point that he wants his bones taken to the physical land that represented the spiritual promise of God. And so we see Joseph is exemplary, and so now we're starting to formulate and see why 37 through 50 are dedicated directly to this man, Joseph. Because he's being held up for us as someone that we might see as exemplary in his faith, as exemplary in his understanding of the covenant. But I think there's a deeper reason that we should see that Moses directly 
focuses his life for us, gives us his life and focus. If you look at uh, verse 19, once he's received this lying message from his brothers, he, uh, after he hears, he, he, his, uh, his brothers come and fall down and they, they weep before him. And his answer to them is so clear. Do not fear, he says, for, literally he's saying, for I am not God. In other words, he doesn't exonerate his brothers. Nowhere in the text of Scripture will Joseph say, what you did is okay. Nowhere will he say, you didn't sin against me. Nowhere does he say anything except, even though you sinned against me, yet God had a better plan. Look what he says. As for you, you meant evil. As a matter of fact, not only does he not exonerate them, he charges them with guilt. You did evil against me. Your intent was evil. Not even just that you did evil, but your intention was evil. From your very heart, you were acting evil, out evil. But God meant it for good. God meant it for good. And he did this to save many. Now that's the text that I think gives us the reason for Joseph's life being displayed to us in the way that it is. What you did for evil, God meant for good. To bring it about that many people, that many people, numerous people, the Bible is saying, will be saved alive. That they would be here today. Now the reason Joseph is in view from 37 to 50 is because he represents for us Jesus Christ. Joseph was the servant of God in the nation of Israel. We know that he had a direct line of communication with God. In chapter 37, it says he dreamed dreams, and God told him the future. None of the other brothers had this kind of relationship. Now, Joseph, unlike Christ, was not wise. It's as, as a young man, he was still immature, wasn't he? Because though he was receiving this information, he didn't necessarily need to give the information. Jesus... It's just the opposite of that. In the Gospels, when we read the life of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we find Jesus not bragging about being the Son of God. We find Jesus rather telling people when He does great acts and works, don't tell anybody. Don't tell them who did this. We see the wisdom of Jesus because had He said boldly at the beginning of His ministry, I'm God. In the flesh. What would have happened? Well, we know the few times it comes out, what happens? They pick up stones and they drive him to the brow of a hill and they're ready to kill him. Jesus, unlike Joseph, Joseph, unlike Jesus, doesn't show wisdom. Jesus has great wisdom, even from his youth. Luke tells us when he was in the temple teaching his peers, or teaching not his peers, but his teachers, that he left that place and went and stayed with his mother and father and did what? He grew in stature and wisdom. But he was already displaying great godly wisdom in his dealings, even as a young man. Even early in his ministry. He knew that it wasn't time for the whole world to know him as he really was. Though there were plenty of evidences, though his miracles should have been a 
plain evidence, and we know that, though his own words, near, especially near the end of his ministry, became very pure and very clear to the point. He understood timing. He was under God's leadership. He was the servant of God, and he acted with wisdom. Joseph, in 37, is the servant of God, in direct communion with God, even receiving dreams and visions no one else is receiving, and yet he's acting not in wisdom. So, though Joseph is representative of Christ, he's not Christ, is he? We see that he's not perfect for us. He's the type. Christ is the fulfillment, the antitype. Not only this, but let's think of this. What other do we see in Joseph's story leading up to our text that would tell us that Joseph represents Christ for us in this epic of Israel's history? Well, clearly, his brothers hate him. Do you think that's coincidental? Oh, no. Oh, no. Why do his brothers hate him? Because he's the son of his father. He's the son of his father, and he's the father's most beloved. He's robed in the father's garments. He's cherished by the father of their home, and they're jealous, and they hate him. John tells us that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. So here again, we have the type. Here's Joseph, the favored one, the son of his father, despised and rejected by his brothers. Only to be fulfilled fully in Jesus Christ, who was the son of his only fa- uh, the only son of his father, full of grace and truth, and hated, hated, rejected by his brothers. But there's more similarity here. There's much more similarity because the Bible tells us, and you may think, well, if he was really ex- an example and a type, then he would have been killed rather than sold into slavery. Oh no, the cross must be dramatized completely. You see, because he was made a slave, though he was free by his brothers, he was made a slave, and he was sold off into Egypt, and he served then under the, under the slavery of Egypt. Jesus did the same thing on the cross. I would, con- I would say that Jesus was placed under the slavery of sin while he was on the cross. He was made to be sin who knew no sin. Joseph had no, Joseph had no identification with Je- Egypt. He was, not to be sold as a, he was not to be thought of as a slave. As a matter of fact, we know that Joseph was a prince. Joseph was a prince. Joseph should have been revered and respected but rather than that, he was sold into slavery. Again, we see in the shadow the picture of the coming destruction that would fall on the Messiah. He was sold under the slavery of Egypt like Christ was made to be sin at the cross. Rejected by his brothers, sold under the slavery, he goes off to serve. But he does it without, without a word. If you look at the story of Joseph... An interesting, if you go back this week and read it, an interesting fact should come up in your mind. Where are his complaints? Where's his defense? What part of the story does Joseph say? I'm being done wrong. You can't do that to me. He doesn't do it with his brothers, keeps his mouth closed. 
He doesn't do it with the slave traders. Do, does that ever strike? That's, that strikes me as I read the story. Here Joseph is with his brothers selling him. Why didn't he speak up and say, These are my brothers. I'm being sold under slavery and I'm not a slave. I'm one of them. They're taking me away from my home, my family. They've kidnapped me. Where's his defense? He's silent like a sheep being led to slaughter, isn't he? He goes off into Egypt. He's sold into Potiphar's house. He serves impeccably. So much so that he's raised to the top of the house. He, he has the keys. He's the chief steward of everything there. Potiphar's wife lies about him. Tells, him, t- tells them that he committed an adultery with her. Again, we find Joseph not opening his mouth in self-defense, not charging anyone, but rather accepting what God has given him. He goes into the prison, and again, you would expect him to be telling everybody, the biblical story would be saying, Joseph sat around with his inmate buddies and said, you know, y'all are all here because y'all are evil. I'm here because I did good. That's not his story. No, he serves his inmates. So much so they make him the head of the prison. Now, he will tell his story, but when he tells his story, he does it without prejudice. He does it without charging and without condemnation. Just like Jesus opened his mouth at his trial, didn't he? The Bible says he didn't. Right? It says he didn't open his mouth. He was like a sheep led to slaughter. But we know he did answer questions, didn't he? What did he not do? What he didn't do was defend himself. What he didn't do was charge others. What he didn't do was act as a lawyer pleading his case. He just simply told them when they, was asked, when they asked him questions. He just simply responded. Joseph, the same way. Suffers. Even when he tells the two men, the cupbearer and the baker, their dreams and they go out, they forget him. <laughs> they leave him. And he serves on a, there until Pharaoh has a dream and God brings him out. We don't see any recording of Joseph's vindictiveness against the people who mistreat him. Rather, we see him acting as one being led by God throughout his life, no matter good or evil, and doing it without reproach, without condemnation, without hollering or crying out for justice. We don't even find in Joseph, Job. Because when Job's under the hand of God and in affliction, Job cries out against God. Now, he never charged God with wrong, but he has a lot of questions for God, doesn't he? Joseph, we don't find those. Why? Because, again... Joseph's being raised up for us as a shadow of the coming promised one who would be led off into captivity, sold under the slavery of sin, and crucified for our sins. Joseph truly is a model for us in this time. He is a type. He is a shadow of the coming Lord. Even when he deals with his brothers. Even when he deals with his brothers, he represents himself as one who is forgiving and gracious. Forgiving and gracious. Giving them their grain without a price. Bringing, working to bring them all to Egypt, not just a few. Working hard to keep them from being imprisoned or being themselves condemned to a crime which they very easily could have been in that whole scheme. 
No, Joseph is just, and in some ways he's the justifier. He not only is just in his dealings, but he takes on the sin of his brother. So we see in this statement, my point is, we see in this statement, we could go through and continue on. It was, lastly, I would say, it was through Joseph that the whole world was saved. Had Joseph not been in his position, the whole world, we're led to believe, would have starved. Like Christ, who not only saved his people, uh, his physical descendant, uh, the people he physically descended from, but he saved some from all nations, right? Joseph does the same. Joseph provides not just for Israel, not just for Egypt, but for every nation, we're told. Every nation came and took from the grain of Egypt to survive during the famine. So again, we see the parallel, the type and the antitype. And it's all summed up and given to us right here in verse 20. Everything I've just told you is not conjecture. It's absolutely the truth. It's the way we should see it. Why? Because look at verse 20. As for you, you meant it evil against me. So we can read the story of Joseph and say, look at all these evil people mistreating Joseph doing him wrong, being unjust. We could do that. That's the true statement. But look what Joseph chooses to do, and I would encourage that we do the same. We read the life of Joseph, we should see that this was what God sovereignly planned so that many would be saved. We see Joseph's life like Christ's life. Peter interpreted Jesus' life the same way. Did he not? The perfect judge, the perfect Lamb of God, was taken and slain by the hands of what? Lawless men. But what's his ultimate statement? Un under the preordained plan of God. Joseph sees his life this way. Joseph has a Christ-like look at his life. I could sit around and moan about all the lost years and all the suffering and all the evil that was done against poor Joseph. And I could pity myself, but the reality is everything that's ever happened to me was planned by God. And it all had a purpose to save, not to kill. So why does Joseph dominate the end of the first book of the Bible, chapters 37 through 50? Well, I would say it's found in 50, verse 20. Because the God of the Bible, through the pen of Moses, wants his people to know that the Messiah's life saved. Not just was that treated, was it Jesus? We, we, we have the same, I had the fear, we have this, I fear that we have the same look at Jesus' life. We spend too much time in sentimental uh, feelings, feeling sorry for Jesus, pitying him. Look at Jesus, poor Jesus. He's nothing but nice and good, and look what they did to him. And that's not what his life meant. That's devaluing him. Just like if you look at Joseph's life that way, you devalue Joseph. Don't do that to Joseph. His life mattered. His life was under the hand of God. His life followed the architectural plan that God had laid out for it, just like Jesus. And he's not to be pitied, but he's to be seen as an example. He's to be seen as a type, a shadow of becoming Christ. Don't pity Jesus. Don't feel sorry for him and his suffering. No. Rather, see him as the king that he is, exalted because he was humbled, brought to a place of salvation for many through the suffering of the cross. 
And so we would close by just saying, do you know this Christ? The Christ emulated, uh, the Christ that was shadowed, foreshadowed in Joseph, do you know this Jesus? I hope that you do. I hope that you're not just sentimental about Jesus or you're not just, you know, you're not just religious about Jesus, but rather that you truly treasure him as the one who came to die that you might have life. The one who came to set you free from your slavery. The one who is the deliverer of his people. And the one who visited them after years of slavery in Egypt and brought them to the promised land. He'll do the same for all who believe in him today. He will never fail to bring them to the promised land. All right. So, this is, I would say, an example of what we've been teaching. The story of Joseph is a real story. It is a historical event. It is a national event for the people of Israel. But more than that, it is a type that points us to the anti-type, Jesus Christ. Now, the only thing I would do differently is I would probably preach eight or nine messages, ten messages out of the life of Joseph, and I would take each of those points, I made a point today, and make them a whole sermon. And the only guilt I have over this is that it was too quick and that it, was, it was, had to be done fast, but it was just for the point of example. But just expositing verse 20, and I've never done it, so I'd have to think, but I think if I was going to teach on Genesis 37 through 50, I would probably use 50 verse 20 as my theme. That would be my verse with the, with the meaning for the, all that section. What you intended for evil, God meant for good. That would be the theme, and we would, we would go expositing, really, verse 20 with 37 through his whole life. And we would be tying it to Christ all along. Do you see that? No, it was quick. All right. Hopefully, this is the way you will read the Old Testament from this day forward. You will look, hey, sometimes I fail at it. Sometimes I don't find it. And sometimes I find what's not there. But I would rather strain for Christ and miss it than I had to settle for something less and be guaranteed not to find it. Okay? So keep striving. Always pushing to see Christ in the scripture. Let's pray. Father, as we close this time, we're just...